Oh, this is just like high school. Sometimes when things go badly with the country, it's useful to have experiences you can rely upon to remind yourself that things never get worse, things never get better, both worse and better just reemerge. It's good to look at better when it happens and enjoy it. But if things were constantly getting better and better and better, better wouldn't matter. You know, it's, uh, I kind of remember the first time I took a train across the country. My, uh, my wife and I took an Amtrak when we started dating and it was a really awesome trip to go across the country and they had a staggered meal time plan where you would get breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And they were, uh, for whatever reason, we weren't doing anything. We were just sitting in our, we, uh, we indulged on a uh, train cabin, which sounds really exotic, but it's actually often cheaper than getting a plane ticket. We get a private cabin and we were able to, might be more expensive now, but at the time, but at the uh, time Amtrak was undergoing some problems financially. So you could get a pretty damn good trip like that. And we would get so much food that food became bloating and unsatisfying. And in that way, I kind of thought, well, this must be what, what it's like to be rich and how boring that would be. And I also had this perspective that this must be the way life feels when it's always just better, you know. And I didn't especially like it. I like when things are a little difficult or uh, just to not by preference, like how would you like today to go? I'd rather it be better, obviously, than worse. But worse things happen all the time. And that includes racism. That includes violence. That includes other weird shit. I think the one thing that is genuinely a worse right now, that is getting worse, that needs to get addressed, is guns. And that makes racism a little difficult. But if we just want to talk about talk of uh, the impending race war, or white nationalism, or the divided country, I would like to uh, dismiss it and say just politely, oh, this just reminds me of high school. And to say this, it doesn't mean, oh, this seems childish. It just means that the last time I dealt with white nationalism like this was actually during high school. Denver, Colorado and Aurora, Colorado both had their problems with this. So thinking that things never get worse, they just reemerge is actually a helpful or useful perspective with white supremacism. I saw it go up, crest, get really bad and go down. Other people before me told me, you know, this reminds me of the 70s or this reminds me of the 50s or, you know, seek out other people from other generations and they will tell you their own experiences with white supremacism. Or if you're a person, you know, uh, that's older than me and you, uh, you're convinced that this is the worst you've ever seen, well, then we have different perspectives and I respect that. Regarding different perspectives, I have friends who find the rise of white nationalism and hate to be very, very troubling and certain it's going to get worse. And I agree that it's disgusting, but I just want to say today, I don't consider it unfamiliar. 
I just see the melting pot of America to be sort of a stew that moves around constantly. There's good parts of the stew. And sometimes the shit inside the stew bubbles up when there's uh, too much white hate suddenly on the surface. Nobody ever wants to eat that part of the soup, though. It'll sink down below soon enough and be thrown out with the pot. Fresh pot will come in with new people because people die and ideas need other people to keep them alive. That's the nice thing about mortality. And we might have a weird moment here uh, or two with uh, the current alive white supremacists and their possible access to guns and bombs. That's a creepy one. Or I guess if they just want to use a, a car as a weapon to mow down a crowd, there's that. But I don't see the rise of hate in America to be any worse than it's ever been. And in fact, the rise of hate in America makes perfect sense to me because there has been so much improvement in society for the last 10 or 15 years. We've gotten a black president. We have gay marriage. We also have so much gay inclusivity right now that you are allowed to list your gay partner as uh, somebody who can visit you in the hospital as a significant other, shit like that. Humanizing things like that. Diversity intended to be much more aware of the struggles of being a black person or a brown individual is uh, certainly happening. There's a lot of shit that's moving the needle positively forward. And the proof that these immense strides are real is because we have such a visible sense of hate in response to it. It's not hate is gaining a foothold, it's hate is throwing a tantrum. And America has always had to deal with both categories, rise and fall, of either positive or negative simultaneously. You know, I mean, the big one is one Obama equals one Trump, you know, but not really, because Trump is a one-term loser. And so it's really two Obamas for one Trump. And if you want to add Biden as an extra point, it's actually three to one now. That's how progress gets made, you know. A little white nationalism, but a lot of good. And we're dealing with a weird economy right now with COVID, which was just made worse by Trump not giving a shit about it. Because he wanted to grow the hate base. He wanted to give them position. You know. Of course, this is perspective. A way of looking at something. If you want to look at the bad that is happening in the world, just looking at hate by itself... You could say the last 12 years have been pretty difficult. I'm including Obama's presidency because it was the catalyst and Trump's four years as the crowning victory for hate. How dare we have a black president? It was a pretty terrible moment for those hate people. So if you follow this as a chart, why a global race war is sure to be imminent in the next year or two, just based on that perspective. But you're totally wrong. <laughs> You, I think people who talk about a global race war or something like that actually fantasize about it. Not supporting it, but they just sort of had doom thoughts like that. A lot of doom thoughts can happen, of course, but I don't see a global race war imminent in the next year or two. America's economy would have to completely collapse. And the economy really is one of the reasons why we have a lot of problems right now, but... 
I wouldn't put the blame on the person out of the job. I would put the blame on the billionaires and other people who could solve this instantly with a percentage of their immense wealth. Wealth is an issue. Wealth is why we have such a racist problem right now because it's not distributing. And so people who are left to be depressed on their own emerge with these really weird struggling ideas about race and inequality and just, you know, they're mad at somebody, but they don't understand that it's really Jeff Bezos's fault. Or just people with the means to correct this, to give back to their country. Instead, they just want to compile an amount of money they'll never even use. Their great-great-grandchildren will never even use, you know. How many shoes do you need? <laughs> The shoe closet of uh, Jeff Bezos is too damn packed. But all this talk about white nationalism is actually the short memory of America. I am thankful that at my age, I'm 46 now, so I've been able to go through about two or three America cycles. I'm sure people older than me will go, ha, that's nothing. But I can tell you that at least my personal experience is that the 1990s were far worse in terms of public street-side anger and riots than they are today, and far less controlled. The cops are the real problem now in terms of street-side protests, but actual one side versus the other side was frightening in the 90s. The KKK was a re-emerging presence and it found a great opportunity in many cities, punk communities, unfortunately. And that's a weird one. I think this is partly because of how vibrant and interesting the counterculture was at that time. You know, uh, everything before Nirvana broke. And uh, so before Nirvana, as much as I enjoy Nirvana records, but before that, there was like a whole world of culture that people could claim their own just based on music. And all these weird bands and you would love your band and your band would be who you are and a lot of the bands were really bizarre too regarding regarding uh nazi imagery for play which was very insulting and nod but you know you can think of some bands like death and june and stuff I wasn't into any of that. I was uh, into a lot of industrial music and identified myself as an industrial music guy. And that was really cool. It was a little weird when, uh, I guess, the, Nir the Nirvana moment for industrial music was uh, Nine Inch Nails happening. And that I resented the success of Nine Inch Nails a lot because I felt like my identity was getting stolen. But before Nine Inch Nails, there was ministry and ministry had a huge following of skinheads. So this was a weird moment, me being a Jewish kid and very liberal and anti-racist, to find the music that I love actually being the music of other terrible people. You know, uh, I guess uh, rednecks have this happen all the time. Sorry if you're a redneck, but I mean to say, you know, your uh, good old boy music is just as applicable for a church-going lover of the world and you know, some clan guy, but it was uh, weird for me in Denver growing into an identity because 
you know, you have to go through a full cycle before you have the perspective of, oh, this reminds me of that time in my life. I just felt like everything was new. And it was very strange to suddenly see strains of the KKK in things that I considered very good and very uh, galvanizing to my identity. Suddenly seeing Klansmen everywhere was even weirder. The odd thing, though, is there's that concept of the frog in the boiling pot of water. And in many ways, I actually got introduced to hate very gradually. So I'd like to describe how hate groups were introduced to me living in the least difficult city in the world to grow up in. Also known as Aurora, Colorado, a suburb of Denver in the 1980s and 1990s. Aurora, Colorado was the easiest city in the world to grow up in. This was decades before it became somewhat famous for a person shooting up a movie theater during a Batman premiere, or its close proximity to Columbine High School, or even its terrible recent press with police murdering an introverted black 23-year-old named Elijah McLean. Elijah McLean wasn't even alive when I was growing up in Aurora. It's terrible that he died, by the way. But no, this was years before this. Aurora at the time was just two soccer fields, an elementary school, and the Buckingham Mall. This was my 10-year-old memory of the town. There were a few 7-Elevens there, too, but mostly it was just biking to the Buckingham Mall through about three or four neighborhoods. Completely allowed to do that, by the way. <laughs> the the route that I took to get to the mall from my parents' home is it's hilarious like how much traffic I crossed, but you could do that at the time. And I went to the Buckingham Mall to look at the bookstore to get comics and to pick up music, first on cassette and then later on CD. And to give a sense of how small Aurora was at the time, the Aurora City Council was in the parking lot of the mall. Literally. There was a city council building in the parking lot, and that is where the mayor worked. There was a penny fountain in the Buckingham Mall with an orange Julius right next to it. That's a place to get a weird orange drink. And back then, it wasn't uncommon for adults to talk to strangers or to kids. And so it's not surprising that this time when I was 10 or 11 in the Buckingham Mall was when I would see my first in-person Nazi. It was a shaved head guy who looked as sad as I'd ever seen anyone, and he just hung out by the penny fountain every day, every day I was there, wearing tall Doc Martin boots, suspenders, the whole oi look, the whole look. I mentioned this lonely skinhead because the Buckingham Mall in Aurora was a safe place for me to be and to talk with everyone. There was no adult safe from me in that place. I would constantly talk the ear off the comic store owners in particular. And so it's not surprising that even the skinhead and I had some conversations once or twice. I didn't know what a skinhead was when I was 10. So one day I just said to him, cool boots. He was sad and his sad face smiled and he said thanks. And he asked me then in reply where I got the comics. I pointed out where the store was, and that was that. Our information exchange. Jump ahead two years, and one of my closest friends has become a punk, 
and I haven't seen him in half a year because his parents had divorced. He'd gone to live with his father, and in the transfer of custody, my friend had taken the chance to redefine himself. My 12 or 13 year old friend had been an Eagle Scout six months previous, and now when I'd run into him in the mall, with his father beaming in pride at the transformation, my friend was a weird looking guy. He'd shaved the middle of his head in a circle and put the rest of his hair up in a kind of reverse mohawk. It's commonly referred to as a crown, as a punk haircut. It's one of the most extreme haircuts you can do, and he'd always been just this weird kind of uh, awkward kid just like me but to me he'd grown to be five or 15 feet taller in stature and presence and I knew then and there that I needed to be one of these punk people I couldn't help but notice that my friend was wearing the exact same boots the skinhead had been wearing and unable to say anything about my friend's hair all I could utter was cool boots and my very non-racist friend told me where he'd bought them. It was a two-syllable idea I'd never considered. Downtown. That meant Denver. So I looked at a map and I found out where downtown was. And I found the store he told me about. Where such cool boots could be purchased. And, surprisingly, I'd never noticed it before in my life that there was a bus that went straight down there from Aurora right down to Denver. You could easily take a bus down Mississippi west and get there in about 50 minutes. I mentioned busing in Denver because this was also a big issue. White people are generally very selfish about what they have and white people in Aurora had some amazing schools and even really great bus routes like this one Mississippi to downtown. But inner-city education in Denver was poorly funded and lacked many resources and connections compared to Aurora schools. And to correct access to opportunity, when I was 14, they started busing in minorities from other parts of the city into our white schools. A bunch of kids at school were horrified at the idea. They're bringing in the black people. This was a great offense to many white people, and many white people complained about this. In particular, the white people parents would show up at the meetings and say, please, why is this happening? What else can be done instead of making our kids deal with some inner city black kids sitting inside their schools? At this time, the inner communication network of other students began with leaflets. This was during the Xerox era, which is far more private than the internet. And I was told with a leaflet that the bust-in black students were said to be thieves and rapists. These were two words I'd never even really heard before when I was 12 or 13, but I learned about this in the back alley behind the 7-Eleven. A few of the kids I'd grown up with were becoming punks. I was a skateboarder at the time, growing out my bangs with a Tony Hawk skateboard that I really loved, although I was too short for it. I had yet to get my coveted cool boots that would allow me access into the punk world. And so until you get the cool boots, the coolest thing you can become in Aurora was a skater. But it would happen for me eventually, I'd get the boots. But some of the punks were trying out racist words behind the 7-Eleven, behind our middle school. 
and a few of them, now age 14, were even identifying as skinheads. That's where I got the flyer about the 14-year-old black thieves and the 14-year-old black rapists that were going to be bussed into our middle school. From that point on, every step forward on me finding my identity in counterculture was met with others in the same community becoming Nazis or Nazi-loving skinheads. The ratio on this was about 4 to 1, maybe 5 to 1. Although, you know, every friend that I've made since I was 20, it's been 0 to 1. <laughs> I've yet to make a friend. That is, uh, so this is certainly a lack of maturity on somebody. If you're thinking, uh, this is something somebody grows into, another idea. People will grow out of being hateful and grow into being loving. So even if we have white nationalists, it won't be a population that constantly grows and grows and grows. The more it crumbles, you don't naturally want to hate unless you have a legitimate uh, mental illness. But for most people, you grow out of hate. And it's an immature side of developing your identity if it's attractive to you. And I suppose it was attractive to people trying to identify themselves as individuals in the 14 to 15 to 16 age bracket of my life. At the time, for every four people I knew in our group, there was one of them that might be a skinhead or leaning that way or dating a skinhead. And there were some funny examples of the instant karma regarding that. There was a girl that we knew quite well who was lovely, very cool, but she dated a skinhead and they ended up having sex on some fiberglass in a barn and having to go to the emergency room covered with slivers of glass in their back <laughs> or their body. And I just think that's hilarious because mom, I'm 14, not only am I uh, having sex, but oops, I'm also covered in fiberglass and yeah, you know, my boyfriend is a Nazi. That'd be a hell of a lifetime movie. But that was a funny moment. I remember thinking that that was instant karma when that happened. I didn't think it was terribly tragic. I thought it was sad that she was dating a Nazi. But that was the way it was in 14 and 15 years old. I don't think anybody when they are that young is really to blame for taking on those perspectives. You know, you're trying to seem tough or try something out. Of course, committing a hate crime is different than considering a hate thought, but we all liked the same music and so we all got along. And we were all depressed or anxious adolescents. I wouldn't be too forthcoming about the fact that I was Jewish, but then I suddenly would become overly interested in letting people know that I was Jewish too. So that was interesting. There was a time that I referred to the beginning of this about shamefully hiding the fact that I was Jewish with a bunch of uh, clan guys that were football players. But then that shameful moment made it very important to me that every damn skinhead that I knew knew that I was the, uh, the kike in the group. And there wasn't a lot of uh, Jews in Denver at the time. So there was some risk there with that, but it felt great. And of course that opened up to me being teased. But whatever, I had my pride or I had my dignity. But really, everybody, me the skater, soon to be a goth or a punk, and then others who were punks, soon to be skinheads or whatever, we were all trying on different action figure representations of ourselves in the world's safest city, Aurora, Colorado, where none of us had any reason, if you look at the history of, say, skinheads based in uh, Germany or England, we had no class or poverty issues to force that. It just was a great, cool look. 
great, cool boots, right? You could identify either as a racist with the way that you laced your cool boots, either uh, what they call ladder lacing, which is straight lacing of white or red, depending on your cool boots. So it'd be a horizontal ladder lace, no crossing X's. And that meant you were a racist. Or as small to figure out as this is, if you just didn't, uh, if you just did cross, cross lacing, you weren't a racist. But we all wanted the same boots. Same, uh, same boot company just did an IPO, or is beginning to, Doc Martin. Punk as fuck. Also liked Fluvogs a lot, but they didn't have, uh, no, no skinheads really wore Fluvogs as far as I remember. But we were all trying on different action figure representations of ourselves, that's it. Nobody wants to hear that. They want to think that they're inventing themselves. And a year later, I entered high school, and it became even odder. I was solidly a goth at this point, had found my boots, and though I listened mostly to industrial music, and the blended term at the time was, I guess, a death rocker, which is silly sounding. But basically, it was a punk goth, I, uh, and I carried a knife with me for self-protection because I also wore a lot of makeup. I used Halloween one year, freshman year, to introduce the idea of me wearing makeup to school. I uh, dressed up as uh, Robert Smith one day for Halloween, showed up in lipstick and eyeliner, everybody was cool with it, and then I just decided to continue doing it through the week, and that was, and nothing really happened to me, and so I saw that I could continue doing it the next week, and that felt fucking awesome to be at school wearing uh, some sort of like clear, I am different than you face. My goth friends and I hung out at Denny's during the week and downtown during the weekend, and by this point, all of us had our boots. I had three pair, one of them was black patent leather, and I got them all downtown in Denver at a, a couple stores on 13th Street, and this is uh, probably still the punk shopping district. And all the stores, when you went into them at this place in downtown Denver, was packed with punks, goths, skaters, and skinheads, all together, mingling with one another, buying shit, and never really getting in each other's way. Because counterculture at that time was so strange that skinheads and punks and skaters and goths, we all hung out together. It wasn't until live music shows when I started to see how frightening skinheads were, however and Ministry, which I referenced earlier, toured Denver one year. And it was probably the most frightening thing I have ever seen in terms of a pit of Nazis, a mosh pit of Nazis destroying people. It's uh, very, very frightening. I've, <laughs> I, I know other people who've been to those shows and they can probably confirm what I'm describing or being unable to describe, but basically a mosh pit and ministry show was like 50 or 60, maybe a hundred uh, skinheads going around attacking the entire audience. And ministry had a, uh, I think it had two drummers and they're going each about 200 beats per minute per second, something. Fast as fuck, screaming, uh, strobe lights, you have no idea what's happening and there's blood going everywhere. And yet, nothing would ever be done because this was our show. Everybody, nobody was like, we gotta break these, uh, these weird skinhead riots that happen at our shows. 
no, nobody ever wanted to tell the cops about it because then I certainly am not advocating for that. I'm just saying that nothing ever was done when it was at that level, when uh, the Klan or the KKK kids were just trying out what they would eventually do more stridently in the streets of Denver. But yeah, you, I mean, you were just, uh, you you were hunted at uh, some of those shows where uh, the Klan or the kids, the, the skinhead kids were around. It was scary shit. Also, you know, though, you think you're growing up, so it's kind of exciting. Holy cow. I'm an adult, obviously. I'm not a kid in a room full of a bunch of other kids just tearing each other's faces off to ministry performing. But these weren't kids all of a sudden, too. Uh, these kids at the ministry shows were also growing up and suddenly monstrous in size, and then they were suddenly very attractive as an army to older clan people. And suddenly Denver was filling up with the older clan. And by 1990 or 91, I was actively worried about skinheads and ideas of racist battles in town. And a lot of times that would be our friends. We would just talk about the racist problem or the skinhead problem, you know, but it felt very tribal too. You know, you didn't trust any adult. You felt as a 15, 16 or 17 year old that you were dealing with that problem with your community. The adults really never know what's going on. So right now I'm talking about my issues when I was a teenager. I'm sure some 17, 18, 19-year-old kid could tell me some real horror stories. But I'm here to tell you that at least my horror story totally simmered down. And these kids, a lot of them, got visited by the FBI and other things or wised up, welcomed love and diversity into their life because... The happier you get, the happier you get, the more hateful you become. It's not the same way. The more hateful you get, the more your body slows down and you die. There was a uh, black skinhead, whose name I won't indicate, who was a prize of the skinheads in Denver. And he would talk more trash about blacks than the most foul-talking, racist, white person. He hated, obviously, himself. That's the joke. But or the tragedy, is that it's clearly self-hatred, but they loved having this black guy. And there were other strains of skinheads, polite ones who would insist that they just had a love for their race, and they would talk to you like Oscar Wilde, talk about all the monstrous, cruel blacks who, with their Crip and Blood gang fights, they were the real problem, they try and tell you. I'm just trying to assert love for being a white person. Although I'm sure if I ever got to know these people directly, that uh, fragrant, way of talking would just become the most racist sounding Truman Capote I'd ever met. And there were the football players in our high school. They'd hide their views from the black players. But I'd be at school parties. Well, not really school parties. I'd be at parties at a friend's house. And a few of them would show up as guests of a skinhead who was there. That happened when I was about 15 or 16. And later, these football players and the skinheads would isolate themselves in the kitchen, and they would all start screaming, oi, 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 as they all got drunk on Boone's farm. The entire scene is so juvenile and insane. Clan kids weren't even the worst people. I mean, I'm talking about hate, but there's also really terrible crimes that happened with a lot of these kids. There were some animal abusers that came out of this community. There were a few child molesters that came out of this community, and there was some real trouble, too 
with some brainwashing weirdos with Manson fantasies who would try to make a cult out of others during acid parties. Denver's had its uh, share of sex scandals with people who grew out of this community into becoming business people and have uh, recklessly mishandled their authority with younger women. There's some stories there to find. It's easy to figure out what I'm talking about. But they all came from this place. Denver was peculiar, but it was also its own unique culture. It was a cool place to grow up. It has a history going back into the 1900s with opium and weirdness, and then, of course, the Beats, Burroughs, Tom Waits, Jello Biafra. A lot of people came from Denver. A lot of Denver makes you a pretty cool person. I think I have some good qualities that Denver gave me. So it had some amazing people, too, of course. I'm just discussing the troublesome people. And very few of these people were friends of mine. But I've never, point of fact, just not been friends with somebody because we differ in opinion. And a couple of these skinheads, sure, why not? I'd be gracious. I'd tell them they were an idiot or an asshole. And they'd take it. I think that's one problem right now with cancel culture is that it's totally fine to fucking be friends with a racist. <laughs> it's a benefit to them. And uh, it's not that you become a racist. It's actually very, if you are obsessed with diversity or interested in that, it can be very helpful for both people to get to know one another. Because one problem with being diversity minded and only having friends which are diversity-minded that cancel others and we all agree on what is abhorrent behavior is that you aren't going to grow. It can be much more of a better process to just sort of be like, well, I'm just going to like individuals regardless. And I'm not saying I ever liked any of these skinheads, but it was interesting to me to get to know them. And horrifying, too. But I'd always feel... You know, superiority is something that's fascinating to skinheads, and of course I would feel superior to them because I'm not a hateful person. So that can also be kind of a fun perk of talking to a hateful person, is like, I'm not as fucked up as you. So that's kind of fun. So I have to admit that I do have some connections to a lot of the hate that came out of Denver, but also that died in Denver. The funniest part of this blended soup of Denver in the 90s, of artists and racists and club goers was how public and transparent it was. Denver had a lot of nightlife available to underage kids, meaning somebody under the age of 18 at the time. And it had two great rock clubs, all ages night they'd call it. There was Rock Island and Ground Zero. Here you could hang out and be around all the goth and punk friends that you knew in an adult seeming place with club lighting meaning very dark with a couple uh, couple bulbs. Great music, meaning a lot of uh, Sisters and Mercy, usually. And there'd always be Klansmen and Skinhead elsewhere in the bar. And there would also be sort of lurking uh, pedophiles, like the 24-year-old guy who wants to date the 16-year-old, and that would be uh, totally permissive as well, because it was a weird fucking place in time. There was uh, another bar uh, place that I can't remember... Uh, in Westminster. Uh, Ground Zero was in uh, Boulder and Rock Island was in Denver under the viaduct. But I can't remember the I think it was Metropolis, but I can't remember the name of it. There's this bar, there was this one place that was open for six months in, uh, in Westminster. And the reason why I bring it up is because it got, its population, it, it attracted a lot more skinheads 
than goths or punks or whatever. And there was one night, I think it was Wednesday, all ages night. There was one night that I was there and suddenly the entire dance club was just full of skinheads doing like a circular mosh thing. It was very, very weird. But it's just the culture that was happening at the time. I feel this is interesting. That's why I'm sort of like just giving this whole recording out tonight. It all went away, by the way, to the best of my understanding. You know, it, it wasn't the foundation for a white revolt or a great race war. It was just a bunch of people trying to figure out some way to care about themselves. And that's what I think happens when people are racist. They want to be able to care about a component of themselves. You know, if you are outraged about Trump perhaps losing this election, having it stolen from him, I can think of times where I thought the election was stolen from somebody I was supporting. Al Gore wouldn't have been the best president, but I remember thinking that that was certainly stolen from him, from Bush with the hanging Chad nonsense in Florida. And I remember wanting to riot over that. And I think part of that was because a lot of my identity was uh, went into the idea of whatever leader would be controlling the world. And there's a lot of specialness that Trump is giving these people. He loves them. You are special. That's what he said. That's what hatred is. It's an easy way to feel special, you know. But yeah, there, there were those underage nights at those clubs, and that was pretty awesome. A bunch of teenagers just pretending to be adults, including be, and uh, that included being an adult racist around uh, your adult poets. I tried to be an adult poet, I think. When it wasn't an underage night at either club... All of us under the age of 18 or under the age of 20, we'd all hang out at coffee shops. And Denver had two great, 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 capital G-R-E-A-T, great coffee shops. There was Muddy's, M-U-D-D-Y-S, and there was Paris on the Platte. And you basically would go back and forth to the two of them. Muddy's is a, uh, if I can go back in time, Muddy's is where I'm going first. A night at Muddy's and maybe uh October or November at 11 p.m., Friday or Saturday night. That is where I'm going. First spot, first stop. 19, I'm going to say 1992, I would go to Muddy's. My first opportunity going really back in time. I know I got back in time a lot in this show, but that's one place I can't go back because it's a real memory. And I found my identity at Muddy's, and a lot of people did. And there were uh, amazing things that went on in this coffee shop made no sense that it existed for a while. I mean, this is Denver's financial success is guaranteed that a place like this will never exist again, where everyone would spend a dollar to be there for like six or 10 hours, you know, or they'd buy one, one pickle or a bagel or something. And the place just wanted to offer a sanctuary of some sort to the punk community of Denver. And it had quite a history and you felt it when you walked in there. There was a bookstore on top. And then there was this giant open room on the bottom. Kitchen right in view of you. And then if you turn to the right, there was this dark bar thing in the far back where people would play chess. And that's where a lot of skinheads would sort of taunt you sometimes. Or uh, it was just weird. <laughs> Skinheads were everywhere, man. They were the roach problem of Denver. But 
but we would all hang out at the coffee shops and I cannot keep count of how many times I'd be at a packed coffee shop, either Paris on the Platte or Muddy's and be seated very close to a group of Nazis. By this point in my life, I would bait them as much as they baited me because I would be a part of quote, the scene. This was a time in my life where I was part of a scene. And so you would go into one of these places and you would know a lot of people and there was some safety in that. And I'd be called a kike uh, or a kike goth a bunch. And it was uh, ugly, yet I'd always have my reply, yeah, but your life will suck. I like to fortune tell people, and a lot of times I was right. Everybody would laugh, the person calling me a kike, and I would laugh, telling that, calling them a failure. It was a lot of ha-ha-ha going on. I remember saying this a few times to a few skinheads, that their future did not look as bright as it does to a kike. It's insane, but we were all civil enough. Each of us had our own cool boots too, but we had different laces as I've described. And so if you were a uh, Jewish person like me, you had different laces than a loser like a skinhead. But we all had the same boots and that's how Denver was at the time. This was before cancel culture and this was before the internet. And I think one of the reasons why this existed was because the 1990s was itself not even its own culture, you know. It invented very little. I think industrial music was exciting as an idea, you know, uh, a music. But really, in terms of groups, it all referred to decades before it. If you were a goth like me, you fantasized of living in the late 1970s. I fantasized specifically of living in 1983. All I would do was think of how much I missed out not being able to be a goth in 1983, a first wave goth. If you were a punk or a skinhead, you were doing the same sort of cosplay, always thinking back to the same era, really. And uh, you would amplify that to be living in England or living in Germany. We all wanted to live in England or Berlin. And it's all very laughable. This is different than the web culture of today, which thinks that it's actually inventing new standards with cancel culture and other ideas that feel like they are determining, like they're a, a council of minds identifying what is permissible human behavior. And I think part of that is making a bigger hate problem. <laughs> they keep on stuffing it down. You know, I mean, right now, I'm going less and less online. I pretty much look at the news. And it feels much better than amplifying things online, even though I should say you're listening to this online <laughs> that I've posted, so I don't fucking know what I'm talking about. I love the internet. I'm just trying to figure this out myself. Of course, it became less and less civil the more the older each of us became and there started to be a couple crimes hate crimes there was some brutal animal abuse to a cat that i recall as well so that's even worse and that made a lot of people wanting specifically to murder some specific punks and some skinheads that were responsible for either the hate crime that i'm not describing and the animal abuse that i'm not describing then we hit up to 1992, which I've described with the KKK riot, which was bizarre. And by 1993, Denver was getting very fucking weird. The culture was crumbling on this two-party system. 
this two-party counterculture system. I remember at that point some of the more brutal hate crimes that started to happen with more regularity, and I prefer not mention any of them. But yes, it got worse for a minute. Then I moved to Chicago. But when I returned, it was kind of interesting. I'll end this saying that the few skinheads I knew at the time, including the football player at my high school and two others, I was told, suddenly received visits from the government. That was funny. I'd never wished that on anybody. And sadly, those people just sort of became lame. Uh, well, I don't want to judge anybody, but I know that their life could have been better. Hate never really leads into anything beyond worse. Hate is a negative, you know. But I know that if you are more, if you are public enough to get the attention above the counterculture of being hateful. A lot of people are like, well, I'm online, I can be anonymous. No, you're not. I can tell you that. There are, uh, there are programs that, that compare semantics on phrases and can connect a sentence that you've written, you know, today to some weird thing that you put your name onto like five years ago or some shit like that. There's weird AI that is very capable of knowing exactly what people are doing. So if you're online and you're pretending to be anonymous or feel uh, solidly uh, in the dark web or competent with uh, a lot of VPN or whatever you want to call it, you're being certainly found out. And I know that when I was 18 or 19 or 20, a lot of people got those, uh, got those conversations with FBI. It does happen. <laughs> so the next year might get worse regarding white nationalism, but uh, a couple people will certainly get to know it's very frightening, by the way, talking to a government official. <laughs> really makes you question what the fuck you're doing. At least whenever I've had a conversation or two, I've been pretty pleased with what I was doing, like a prank or something. But white nationalism is nothing new. It changes with all culture. And we all have a, a tough year ahead regarding whatever entitlement and position Trump has created for these people. But these people die out and their position fizzles away. Because hate is such a hurtful idea. And it just dies. Love is great. Love is real. The phrase love is love is totally real. And that's what I leave you with. These people got so, so terrible, they had real riots, real hate war riots, and then they went away or they uh, fucked their life up. Most of the friends of mine who didn't fuck their life up actually became the internet. Most of us got into the internet <laughs> going into the 90s <laughs> where you can get a great dot-com job uh, learning HTML and um, provided you kept up with the pace at which uh, these coding languages were developed, you could, uh, you could, you know, be somebody's boss someday. So that's my uh, extensive meditation on my experience with hate in my teens and how it really doesn't get worse it just sort of appears and how familiar it felt to me with the current white nationalist stuff let's end the episode today with episode 23 of charlie pickle you have a supervisor his name is harland 
Thanks for listening to Spoken Word with Electronics, and we'll leave now with episode or with part 23 of Charlie Pickle. Have a great week. Thank you. Everything gets better.